0: So, yes, speaking of bugs, after last week's episode, I found four uh, wasps in here already this year. So, if you spot anything giant and black and scary looking, let me know. Because I will have to kill it immediately. Now that it's getting warm, they're getting like faster and bolder too. Not happy. And welcome to this new episode of Rabbit Holes Podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Elise,
1: And I'm your other host, Andy.
0: And welcome back to the show. This is episode 37-ish, I want to say. I think so. 37. (laughs) That's an old Kevin Smith joke. (laughs) Andy's tummy is still rumbling away, if you remember last week. We might have picked it up in the mic. We can't be sure. You want a break or
1: something? Ah, no, I... I, (laughs) We were on vacation, and we ate just junk, and I had a salad for lunch with Elise, and now it's like my body doesn't know what to do with vegetables. Because <laughs> I had some, like, roasted vegetables while I was away, but it was a lot of, like, pizza and hot dogs and... Kid food. Kid food, yeah. Yeah. My kids don't even like kid food. <laughs> <laughs> Poor Andy. Well, if your tummy
0: needs a break, you let us know. I will. I <laughs> will. So, uh, anything new in you, with you for the uh, four minutes it took between the recording of the last episode <laughs> and this one?
1: No. No? Yeah, it's no. at least nice out today. Yay!
0: It is. It's beautiful. It's gorgeous. It's nice and sunny. I would have the window open, but I don't trust the sound quality.
1: And so, uh, not last weekend, the weekend before, we had that one nice day. So, we cleaned out the vehicles and I used something nice and soft. Nifty, I think? Like to spray on the upholstery. Oh yeah, yeah. It's mostly vinegar and ca- and uh, soap. Mm-hmm. But now my ha- my car still smells like vinegar. Uh, I know it's unfortunate.
0: You need to go through um, chip wagon, so at least you'll have like the complimentary smells of the fried <laughs> potato and the vinegar. Growing oh, up, okay. all of my dad's vehicles had that smell in it. Just permanently. Perma like like his d- center console was like the chip station, uh, condiment bar like the vinegar packages, ketchup. <laughs> forks like the little wooden forks yeah. they used to give out napkins like and if it got too low he would get antsy be like you know they give you that stuff every time you get an order right he's like yeah but what if i forget like dude you never forget <laughs> it's like a constant top-up situation out here we're fine
1: for christmas did you stuff some into a stocking like no
0: but i should have because <laughs> it was off
1: season so we always forget by that <laughs> that's true hilarious i know it's awful i don't really like air fresheners and stuff because right. i find your... perfumes and scents with yeah. my asthma and it, it really acts mm-hmm. up but i'm like i need to get something because this is awful yeah yeah I just just really... hot vinegar smell in your car well it was really damp this morning because it's mm-hmm. been raining and stuff and the car hasn't moved in a week ah so and then it was in the garage for the week before, so it hasn't really hasn't had a chance
0: to air out. Yeah. I hope so... you left your windows down while you're in here.
1: <laughs> oh yeah. So that's what's new with me. My car smells like vinegar. Nice. I hate the smell of vinegar too. Like it's awful. Oops.
0: Yeah. And your tummy is revolting. Oh
1: again. my god. <laughs>
0: Well, we should dive into our stories this week uh, because I went first last time. You should go first this time.
1: Yes. Yeah, so last week I did bugs and Elise is still not. Skeeved <sighs> out. Great. It has been like five Six minutes. Six minutes, but like still.
0: <laughs> you could ask me this question a week from now and I'm still going to be like, no, I hate Andy. And <laughs> this is why. So this one is funnier. Okay, good. It's parrots on drugs. Um, I'm sorry. Coming in?
1: Parrots? Like. I <laughs> like birds. Okay. So I've been sitting on this article again from Live Science for a few weeks. <laughs> it's like the gift that keeps on giving.
0: Yes. You and your Live Science. I know you enjoy it.
1: Uh, so I thought that I would pull it out and see where it leads. Okay. Uh, so did you know that India is one of the few places in the world where licensed opium cultivation is allowed? Makes sense. Yeah. Uh, well, it is. And, and right now, opium poppy farmers are dealing with a unique pest issue. Drug-addicted parrots. Oh, boy. <laughs> <laughs> and parakeets. Yes. <laughs> Birds. So, poppy farmers in the state of Madhya in India. Mahaya Pardish in India. Oh, I really wiped that up, didn't I? <laughs> have reportedly run into some trouble while cultivating this season's crops. Crops, In addition to inconsistent rainfall, putting a damper on things, flocks of persistent presumed to be addicted to opium, are rampaging through poppy farms, sometimes making 40 visits a day to get their fix. Dang, yo! (laughs) Like,
0: where are they getting the money for it? Are they, like, parrot prostituting themselves? (laughs) So, one
1: poppy flower, uh, and it gives about 20 to 25 grams of opium, Mm -hmm. but large groups of parrots feed on these plants about 30 to 40 times a day says one poppy cultivator in the Nishmu Nishmuch district of central India. This affects the production, obviously, and these opiate-addicted parrots are wreaking havoc. I would assume they'd be real dicks about it. <laughs> so, also, they're not getting any help from, like, the government... The birds or the farmers? The farmers. Okay. <laughs> the farmers. So, like, the farmers are trying to use different things like sounds and noise and sonic vibrations to deter them, and it is not working. No, well, no go.
0: If intervention taught us anything, it's that addicts really need to change from within.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so maybe they have to have a bird intervention. Here you go. Jeff Van Vonderen, what are you up to these days? <laughs> so, some birds have been filmed tearing into unripe poppy pods, where the opium-rich milk resides, while others use their beaks and claws to snip off the plants at their stalks and fly away with the entire intact pods. Hmm. Uh, the Daily Mail reported that some birds have even trained themselves not to squawk when descending on the field, snooping, swooping in and out like silent ninjas. Addicts
0: will always find a way to get their fix. <laughs>
1: Uh And the opium-munching birds have been observed crashing into tree branches. Ha <laughs> ha! don't fly high and lying in the fields in a daze oh, yeah. fly off again with when the high wears off
0: so like me on friday nights with my pot when i gotta come upstairs after dinner oh boy oh no hold on to everything
1: so i told you this was gonna be fair so i have poppies in my garden do all poppies produce opium
0: i don't know i would think they do
1: No, only one, really only one type of poppy and all of the types that Mm. come out of that genome, uh, called opium or bread seed poppies produce opium. Also, that's the same kind that produces poppy seeds. Mm. So like the poppy seeds that we eat. Um, but poppies like the red poppy, also known as the corn or field poppy, which most of us link with Remembrance Day mm-hmm. um, does not, and also my Spanish poppies really don't create opium. Hmm. Like, not a measurable amount, anyway. Some of them don't create the, um, the milk-like fluid before they open. Mm-hmm. So, Sorry, my eye's really itchy. There's mm-hmm. no bees in it, though. <laughs> you had to go there. So, and you can actually buy um, bread seed poppy seeds, mm-hmm. but it's sort of a gray area Because technically, you're not really allowed to grow opium poppies. Hmm.
0: But you can buy the unprocessed, non-edible seeds to grow them.
1: Yes. And, like, I don't think they're going to crack down on Granny down the street who's growing poppies and doesn't realize what she's growing. Right. But technically, you are not allowed. Technically, it is a banned substance. Hmm. In the U.S., so I assume it's also a banned substance in Canada. Yeah, probably. More than likely. Um, So poppies grow fairly well in our climate. So have you ever wondered why heroin and opium is always smuggled in and outgrown here? <laughs> no, it's... I hadn't either until I read this article. No,
0: like I never wondered it because as a British historian, <laughs> I've studied the history of the <laughs> the whole sh-
1: Michigan So, <laughs> so uh, no, I hadn't, but okay. I'm going to tell you why not. There are three big reasons for this apparent lack of Agriculture, agricultural entrepreneurship. Okay. Uh, One, the ease of importing heroin makes uh, made from opium poppies grown elsewhere. Mm -hmm. Because yes, they do. Like border securities are very good, but they catch like a tenth of what actually comes in. Uh, The cost of growing poppies in North America and the penalties for growing it. So. To say uh, to make heroin you' need a lot of poppies mm-hmm. sort of like maple syrup yep. so with most crop opium yields vary based on growing conditions but on the average a 2.5 acres of poppies typically produce between 17 and 33 l- uh, pounds of raw opium so the estimated yield of heroin from raw opium is about six to ten percent. Thus, an acre of poppies would yield a little more than 13 pounds of raw opium and 1.3 pounds of heroin in a full growing season at the best of times. It's not a lot. It is not a lot. But from what I can tell from a quick Google search, heroin is worth about $40,000 per pounds in US dollars. All right. And I actually had to log out of my, uh, one of my corporate Google accounts. Good call. before i googled this i was like how much is heroin worth per pound
0: andy are you thinking of a second career choice now
1: (laughs) so based on that a acre of poppies would get you in the best case around fifty three thousand dollars us so i mean not too bad it's also it's a living wage but it's not a comfortable
0: living wage for the risks you're going to yes and i my property is a quarter of an acre so I would have to have four of these to earn that.
1: So I have two acres, but one acre of land. So we could make oh, that okay. okay. Of, like, yeah, if we took my house out. Yeah, yeah, good. Yeah. Now we get to the hard part of trying to hide said acre of poppies. Yeah, it's not a subtle grow up. <laughs> you cannot just scatter them in through the forest and leave them all summers like you can with weed. Right. Um, they need a bit more tending and light and all that. And not to mention, an acre of bright-colored poppies is really not stealthy. No. <laughs> <laughs> Ask a North Carolina man that a lot of this, like... Oh, boy. <laughs> stuff comes from. So, said North Carolina man uh, put an acre of poppies approximately in, like, the bush somewhere. A forest ranger came upon it and was like, oh, these... With, like a beautiful bouquet for my wife as he like got up to it he realized what it was oh boy <laughs> so uh, the penalties are stiff for growing poppies in the u.s in north carolina this dude uh was levied a um illegal drug tax of 186 million for growing the plants Ooh, that's sizable yes since that acre probably only netted him 53 right if that was not the first year he was doing it right And you can also be charged with manufacturing and trafficking by possession. And North Carolina has a mandatory minimum sentence of 225 months, or almost 19 years in prison for trafficking, more than 28 grams of heroin. So he would have been charged with that. For comparison, to get a roughly close sentence, uh, you would have to traffic 10,000 pounds of marijuana to get 14 and a half years in North Carolina. So 28 grams of heroin gets you 19 years. 10,000 10 pounds of, of weed. weed gets you 14. Yeah, So that's why it's blue, right there. Yeah. So here are some facts from um, that Live Science article. As of 2015, the United Nations Office on Drugs and Crime... Estimated that there were more than 690,000 acres of land under cultivation for opium poppies worldwide. So that's approximately 330 tons of heroin produced. Not shocking, Afghanistan is the world's capital of opium. Yeah. Estimating pegging its, estimates peg its share of the global opium production between 75 and 85% with an estimate of nearly 500,000 acres under cultivation as of 2016. Uh, Most of Afghanistan's production ends up in on the black market in uh, Russia, Asia, and Europe. But smaller heroin producers like Myanmar and um, Laos also feed those markets. For us, even those countries, though, profits flow through the drug cartels that process and move the heroin, not the people who grow it. Yeah. Uh, Vice reports so um, Vice, Uh that in 2016 that Mexican farmers could sell a kilo of opium paste for eight hundred and seventy dollars. The amount of heroin that quantity of paste could once processed fetched more than four thousand five hundred on the streets in the United States. In Afghanistan, again, the UN Office on Drugs and Crime estimate that the total export value of opium trade is four billion dollars but only one billion of that goes to the farmers who grow the opium poppies the rest flows to traffickers and warlords along with government officials who look the other way as poppy blooms nod in the fields
0: that was um one of my friends whose husband served in afghanistan one of the war stories he brought home was the time that they were ordered to burn a poppy field which isn't going to make them friends with the local Taliban, because it was that was their profit that they yeah. were
1: lighting. Or really anybody, because that's their living.
0: Yeah. Uh, also, uh, Central Command didn't think it through, because you know what happens when you burn poppies? You get a giant vape station.
1: So. <laughs> so, as a teen in the 90s, mm-hmm. heroin was something that I always heard about. Heroin chic was a popular modeling trend, a.k.a. Kate Moss. Mm-hmm. That sort of look. And I love grunge and 90s alt rock and that was up to their eyeballs in it andrew woods death kurt cobain courtney love scott whelan shannon hoon just to name a few died from it uh, courtney love their, didn't die well no, sorry
0: <laughs> that was the only name other than kurt cobain on that
1: list that i recognized so <laughs> uh that's how i know that those except for courtney love and kurt cobain did not die directly from his addiction but he was highly addicted um, other musicians are open about their battles with uh, heroin and opioids. Uh, Anthony Kiedis of Red Hot Chili Peppers, uh, Nikki Six of uh, Molly Crew. Uh, if you've never read The Heroin Diaries by Nikki Sixx, um, it's a short read, but it is fucked up. <laughs> like, it is so fucked up. I'm right now reading Dirt, mm-hmm. the like the biography that they all contributed to, but oh, okay, Kurt, yeah. it's fucked up, too. They did but. the Netflix movies. Yes. Netflix movie is based off of it, but it's highly, like, sort of condensed and, like, doesn't cover all of the marriages.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Okay.
1: (laughs) Like, it really only covers um, Vince Neil's, one of his marriages and the death of his daughter and um, Tommy's marriage to Heather Locklear.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: But it doesn't talk about Mix or Nikki's marriages at the time. It doesn't talk about Pamela. It doesn't talk about, like, any of the other stuff. Uh, but it's also a pretty good but really like messed up read because these guys were jerks. They were also <laughs> all very, they were also addicts, right? They also yeah. had a lot of emotional issues. Yeah. Um, so to me, the saddest. So this starts really funny, but it ends kind of on a bummer.
0: Oh, good. <laughs> yeah, sorry.
1: To me, the saddest, which I didn't understand this is where this was going to go, but and personally, most impactful death of that time was uh, Lane Stanley the lead singer of Alice in Chains, whose addiction was probably one of the worst um, out of that sort of stories. Uh, Scott Whelan had sort of... He is, for Elise's least overexpression, mm-hmm. he was um, Stone Temple Pilots. Okay. Also Velvet Revolver. He sort of... He was one of those people that, how didn't he die earlier? He only ah. died the last few years from his addiction, but he was like rehab, straight down again, out again, up again. Anyways. So, um, his lanes, uh, addiction ended up getting so bad that it caused him to pretty much become a hermit, barely leaving his apartment from 1999 until his death in 2002. Hmm. Um, he did some stuff like he's actually started retreating at about 97, 98, but he really didn't come back uh, out of his apartment after the 90, 1999. Um, he died on April 5th which is also the date that Kirk Cobain had died previous, you know, many years before, but it actually took about two weeks for his body to be discovered. Ooh. On April 19th in 2002, his accountants contacted his former manager to inform her that no money had been withdraws from, withdrawn from the singer's bank account in two weeks, which also meant he wasn't paying his dealer. Right. Um, Susan Silver, his former manager, then contacted uh, Stanley's mother, His mother, um, who placed a 911 call to say that she had not heard from him in about two weeks, the police with uh, Nancy, his mother, and her ex-husband went to his home and they found him uh, dead. Hmm. They found his body. So at that time, he was was six foot tall. He weighed, at the time of his death, weighed only 86 pounds. (sighs) And when his body was discovered, he was also partially decomposed, so they had to... Uh, identify his body with dental records. Hmm. So very sad death, mm-hmm. and uh, yeah, like that's what that's what. So these stoned birds. To uh, I mean, that's a really extreme case of that addiction. Like he totally right hermited himself, and he made enough money that he could do that. And then like his dealers were just getting direct deposits out of his account, right? And he's getting all his. F- what little food he was eating delivered and everything was being delivered to his apartment he was very leaving he still had a lot of contact with his um family they used to leave him letters and voicemails and he would come out of his apartment uh, occasionally about a month before he had passed away he went to the hospital to visit his sister and see his niece or nephew
0: mm-hmm.
1: and um but very rarely left the house. Mm. Like he was just so far into his addiction. But uh, those birds are pretty fucking funny. <laughs> like, I feel bad for these farmers because they're just trying to make a living. But uh... <laughs> also, uh, my crops are being decimated by air, like opium-addicted parrots.
0: See, this isn't where I thought your rabbit hole was going to go because I thought you were going to talk about, like... Um... Asshole animals in relation to farming, because I think it's it's somewhere in the the far east. A couple years ago, there was a story that came out that um, women in this rural farming community could no longer actually tend to the crops because the local monkey population was sexually harassing them. Like,
1: no, I did not. Find so that I was outside. like, she's
0: going from parrots flying into trees to asshole monkeys. I just know it. I can feel it. And we did not go there at all. Oh. So.
1: We went down the rabbit hole of heroin.
0: Yay, rabbit holes! And you didn't talk opium war or anything. I, I was didn't. like, I'm ready to bust out all of my 18th century British history empire knowledge
1: right here. Well, right I now. figured I probably wouldn't do anything justice, so I just <laughs> went to like, why don't people, more people grow opium, and it's because it's really expensive and the penalties are ridiculously high. Yeah, so you're, I never you're safe with your generally ornamental poppies that you're growing in your garden for the most part. Yes. I'm trying to, like, yeah.
0: I had never considered, like, why don't people grow opium here? But I guess there's just really no need there's when really you can no. get it yeah. so easily from countries that are less yeah, strict on regulating it.
1: Like, yeah, by the time it takes you to tend an acre, like, that's a lot of... I mean, it's a good cash crop, but it's also, like, if you're going to get Dane with a $186 million fine... A million or thousand? If it's a million, that's, like, Pablo Escobar
0: levels of attempts at determined...
1: It said million in my story, and I actually cut and pasted this pretty much from your article. Oh, well, that's a horse of a very different color. Because <laughs> I, I, okay,
0: yeah, that puts a whole new shade on it. Then yes, that's a completely ridiculous level
1: of fineage for... I think that's like the highest level of fine that they could get, but right. I don't think this guy got that for growing an acre of poppies, but... <laughs>
0: I mean, if he did, it sucks to be you. <laughs> it's like, you don't want to be that one person who all of a sudden judge decides to crack down on and make a, a statement out oh, no. of. If I ever got fined, even even like $100,000 of anything, I would just laugh my way out of the court like, good luck. You are welcome to my consumer debt and my unreasonable book collection. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Dear lawyer, can I, can I claim, can I file for bankruptcy now? Yeah. Can we just walk over across the, the hall to the, the, to bankruptcy, the side. To bankruptcy court and put in that paperwork right
0: now? <laughs> <laughs> All right. So my story, I'm going to switch things up because I have a crime-related story to tell, which I was going to do next week, but I'll do it this week because... Led in with heroin use And last time I checked that was illegal everywhere So while I was listening to the podcast Let's not meet Thank you for the Nightmare Fuel, Allie Have you heard of this podcast? No There's a Reddit thread called Let's Not Meet Where people put like scary stories of like Urban scary stories Like people that they were supposed to meet up with To sell a laptop And it turns out they were Probably closer to a child pedophile than anything Like so the whole thing is like Let's not meet again Like we're good So while I was listening to that, they were talking about a situation where someone could have been the victim of a serial killer and only realized it when the man was on the news because he was on trial at the Old Bailey in London. And that made me think of some research that I did for my master's about criminal cases in the 18th century and realized that there is an awesome online database of historical criminal records available to the public at www.oldbaileyonline.org. And that was the inspiration for my story this week. So old-timey crime.
1: I was going to do
0: Canadian criminals. I'll probably still do it. There you go. Yes, because this is... uh, Bridge. Yes, and all three cases I'm going to talk about are from the 1700s, so you're good. (laughs) So for those not in the know, what is the Old Bailey? Well, according to the City of London's website, the Old Bailey has been London's principal criminal court for centuries. The term Old Bailey is the affectionate nickname for the building, which is officially known as the Central Criminal Court. The building itself has its origins in the 1500s, but even before then, justice was doled out in rooms at a nearby building. And why that particular spot in London? Well, it's because Newgate Prison was found at the corner of Newgate Street and Old Bailey just inside the city. And Newgate was the main prison in London from the 1100s through to the very early 1900s. So a long time. One of the most popular images of the building is the Statue of Justice, which stands on its upper dome. She stands at 60 meters above the street, is 3.7 meters high, and is cast in bronze and covered with gold leaf. Her outstretched arms span 2.4 meters. In her right hand, she holds the Sword of Retribution, and in her left, the equally balanced scales of justice. She is unique from most other personifications of justice in statue form because she is not blindfolded. So, justice with reason and context is the whole message there. The Old Bailey started off as a prison to improve the conditions of the nearby Newgate, uh, because Newgate was so crowded. Uh, The kind of new building was completed in 1785. It's London, so that's kind of (laughs) new. At the time of its construction, it held one courtroom, and that was increased to two during the project uh, to expand the building in 1824. This was fortuitous because 10 years later, an act of parliament decided that the court that sat there would have jurisdiction not only over London, but over parts of Essex, Surrey, and Kent, as well as uh, British ships on the high seas. So it didn't matter where in the world you were, if you were on a British ship and you did something wrong, you were brought back to London to stand trial at the Old Bailey. The building was redone in 1902. It took four years to complete and was officially opened by King Edward VII in 1907. And that is the new Old Bailey and it features four courts and 90 cells. Following bombings uh, during World War I, additional repairs and reworking was done and led basically to what the building is now, which featured a restoration of the building and additional courtrooms, bringing the number up to 18. Further work had to be done to repair and restore the building in the 1960s and 70s due to the IRA's bombing campaign, but the building still stands. It is a center for criminal justice in southern England. And fun fact, the central chair on the judge's bench in all the courtrooms is always reserved for the mayor of London, who is also the chief justice of the city of London, which is an old medieval holdover of tradition and custom. What is amazing for historians of London, but really of British history because of the court's jurisdiction uh, that reached out into the empire on naval vessels, is that a group of scholars are working to digitize all the old historical records. The project leads are also using this as an opportunity to foster collaboration between historians, which is great because as a breed, we are very insular and don't like people. So this is wonderful. They welcome people with an interest in coding to contact them to find out how they can participate. And they also provide users with links to other digitized databases, such as transcripts of trials, London convicts sent to Australia, and the results of some studies that have used the data that they host. And they welcome the use of the information from their database for a variety of uses, but just want to be sure that they're credited. So in all the cases I'm talking about today, they come from that Old Bailey online database. But let's get to the meat of the story and hear about some of the stories that I found incredibly interesting. What drew me to this database in university was looking for how often T popped up. So I was trying to get a handle on how Um, pervasive the empire was in daily life back home in England and my thesis supervisor suggested that you look at the old Bailey to see how often people were getting charged for crimes related to tea theft, consumption, forgery, stuff like that in the quest I forgery of tea? yeah you take a lower quality tea, put it in a box stamp high quality tea on it and sell it Mm -hmm. common, commonly done uh In my quest, I came across a story of one Mr. John Pickett, and it stuck with me for the last 10 years. Literally I have thought of this story pretty regularly for 10 years, so now I get to share it with you. Mm In addition to the court transcript, the Old Bailey Online also has the ordinary accounts of some situations, and in the pre-Netflix age, this was a popular entertainment to read the um account. So these were like the priests that would go talk to the condemned people and take their life story down and then print it. So it was really like a serialized, this person's True crime. dead, yeah, yeah. exactly. Uh, so we have both the transcripts from John Pickett's trial, as well as the ordinary account that was published. Um, after, spoiler alerts—he died. So, <laughs> poor John. He was brought before the court at the Old Bailey because he was accused of stealing from the East India Company. Mm. Yeah, the biggest non-governmental power in the empire at the time, which in this case was the summer of 1765. John was born in France. He wasn't educated, and he went to sea very early. He fought in the Seven Years' War as part of the British Navy, and when he got back to England following the war, he got a sizable payout for prizes and wages, but he blew through it pretty quickly and was, quote, determined, if possible, by any stratagem to make his fortune at once and to go into his country, which was go home to France. We know about him because he was accused of breaking into the bullion room of the east india company at india house uh, east india house and stealing 300 pounds worth of silver in a form of what was then known as quote dollars so the bulk of the trial transcript comes from the testimony put forward by one thomas Nuttall, a solicitor for the east india company and not for nothing, but Nuthole sounds like fucking Horatio from CSI Miami, if you ask me, based off of how he's describing. Yeah, I vision him, like, just taking off sunglasses in the court and being super dramatic about everything he's about to say. And that's when I said,
1: time is up.
0: Yeah! <laughs> yeah! <laughs> exactly. Uh, here's what Nut Hall said happened. On Tuesday, March 26th, so this was 1765, around noon, he was called to the East India House building on Leadenhall Street because a robbery had occurred. Now, the East India House was actually a huge complex that acted as offices for the company, warehouse for their goods, a gathering place for those who had any sort of conceivable business with the company. It even had some lounges or bars of coffee houses in it, uh, just so people could hang out and see and be seen by those doing empire style business. But back to Nut Hall. So when he got to East India House, he was advised that the bullion office had been broken into using the chimney flue in the room. Using the chimney flue, someone had traveled from the sailor's lobby on the ground floor up into the building as far as the tea warehouse floor. That's where things went sideways for this culprit, who was poor John Pickett. He found the chimney narrowed too much to get through, so eventually ended up coming into the tea warehouse up through the floor. So the chimney started to get too narrow, so he kind of branched off and went sideways instead of up and out. But, poor John. The spot on the floor he chose to come up through happened to also be occupied by a tea chest, which was described as 19 inches high, 2.5 feet long, and apparently very hard to move because it was full of compressed tea at the time, so packed very tight. John had to bust through that chest to get into the warehouse, which caused all the tea to cast aid down the chimney behind him, and it was reportedly so much tea that he was afraid it was going to suffocate him.
1: That's a bad way to die. It,
0: it, well, as a tea fan, I can think of worse ways to go.
1: Uh, suffocating is a terrible way to go <laughs>
0: regardless. Uh, it turns out, though, there wasn't just one tea chest on um, where John chose oh, to Jesus. come out. The reason the first chest was so hard to move was because there was actually four of them piled one on top of the other. (laughs) Sorry. Something John only learned the hard way after he had to bust through each and every one of them successfully to get out into the tea warehouse. So not wanting to get suffocated, he kind of came through the next tea chest really gently and let it slowly cascade down. But he kept thinking, okay, this is it. This is it. No, there was four chests he had to do this for.
1: This is like the worst Russian nesting doll. Yeah.
0: Um, So in East India house at the time, the bouillon room is right next to the tea warehouse. So it was John's plan to punch holes through the joined wall to get into that bouillon room. So bouillon being the golds.
1: This happened in like the middle of the day.
0: I'm getting there. Okay. Getting there. (laughs) Clearly frustrated by now, John didn't want to take the time to move the two huge tea chests that were piled up against the joint wall between the two rooms. And so he just busted into them, scattered the tea in the warehouse and pulled the remaining husks of the crates away from the wall. He must have been really fucking dedicated at this point because he bored a hole that was 18 by 20 inches wide through all 21.5 inches of the wall from the tea house, tea warehouse into the bouillon room. And we know these dimensions because as Nuthall states to the court, he measured everything. So I believe that he was character. on top of it. Yeah.
1: No, he was a lawyer.
0: Solicitor. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, All this sounds like it would take a really long time, right? Yeah. Well, it did, which is why John actually started the robbery on Saturday night, because he knew that that would give him all of Sunday to work. And since Monday was lady day, which was basically a stat holiday, there would be no one in East India, East India house, the Monday either. So he would have all of Saturday night, all of Sunday and all of Monday, where there would be no one around. So he picked up some food at a local pub, he brought it in with him, and he didn't bring enough, but he, like, he didn't plan far enough ahead, but he planned far enough ahead to know that the crime wouldn't be discovered until at least Tuesday. So in walks Hall on Tuesday, after the long weekend, to this destruction, this missing money, and he sets to work investigating. He rules out an inside job almost immediately, and so advises the local taverns about the robbery and to be on the lookout for anyone tossing around some money that probably shouldn't have it. The thing about the East India Company is that they could be terrifying when crossed. (laughs) Yes. They were the major employer for sailors. They rivaled the Navy and the Army in terms of size and power, and they were ruled solely by profits. That made them ruthless, so of course no one wanted to cross them. Following the robbery, this is the account that he gave to the ordinary afterwards. He said, quote, that he carried the two bags to the girl that he kept and told her that now he would make her a gentlewoman, for he had got money enough and he would take her away to France in a few days." So it was like a romance story in there too. But this wasn't the age of snitches get stitches. It was an age of it pays to be a friend of the company and a gunner on an East India company ship heard about the theft and turned in John Pickett lickety split. Uh he was caught up with pretty quickly. Uh he was tried, found guilty, and condemned to death because you just do not fuck with the company. And so that's why we have the ordinary account of poor John who was hung for his troubles. Yeah. It is a compelling read. Like um when Nuthall showed up on the scene, they couldn't figure out why at first there was a third bag of gold just left hidden behind a door. As um, Pickett told The Ordinary after the fact, he was so weakened from hunger that he meant to take the third bag with him, but he couldn't carry it, so he had to leave it behind. it's <laughs> like, oh, buddy, think it through. <laughs> but it was like a real, like, Ocean's 8 style, like, he surveilled the building for long enough, he learned everyone who was there, like, all of their rhythms, and then decided on this long weekend plan. Just,
1: that was the wrong spot to come through the
0: floor. Yeah. <laughs> it was the real knuckle-headed bang, 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 bang
1: like really yeah
0: <laughs> some criminals just not good uh my next story comes from may 1756, and here are the players we have john bridges who is an officer in Albemarle's dragoons we have george venables who is a neighbor venables venables who is neighbor to mr john bridges we have mrs venables no first name given in the court records of course not uh obviously wife to miss uh to george And we have Mary Main, who was a neighbor to both Bridges and the Venerables, and some sort of domestic worker, based off of how she describes her interactions with them. So what happened? On the morning of Wednesday, April 21st, a ruckus occurred between the Venerables in the morning, and the missus stormed out, telling Mary Main that her husband had beat her again and she was going off to find someone to put a stop to his abuse. Around 7 or 8 that night, Mary Main was sent to Bridges' room to prepare them for the night and was surprised to find him there. They had some conversation, and he encouraged her to have a drink with him, and she had a few sips. As she was leaving, Mary bumped into Mrs. Venerables coming home for the day, and Mrs. Venerables made some jokes about what she, Mary, had been doing with the dashing officer, which pissed Mary off because she is a good lady and did not appreciate the humor at her part. In parting, Mrs. Venables said that she would go see if there was anything left to drink with Bridges and headed up to his lodgings while Mary went back to her own place to finish her chores for the night. Just before 11 p.m., she went to see if Mrs. Venables needed anything else for the night, but only George was home, and he asked Mary if she knew where his wife was. Mary played dumb because she was afraid of George as a wife beater. Probably reasonable. Not a great guy. This is Mary's account to the court of that discussion. He said that she was not upstairs nor in the house. By God, those are his words. He then asked me when I saw her. I told him she went out from our house about nine in the morning, was at home again before eight and went out about half an hour after. Then he made use of this expression, she is a vile good for nothing woman or to that purpose. He damned her and said she had been contriving mischief against him for some time. When uh, the court asked Mary about George's mood at the time, she said he was all of a tremble. His hands and head showed him to be in a great passion. So this conversation happened just before 11 o'clock. Just after 11 o'clock, Mary hears another kerfuffle happening outside and looks out to find George standing with his wife's stays, which is like a bra, in his hands. And she describes the scene as follows. He held up the stays with both of his hands, having hold on the two strings that come over the shoulder, and swore that he had catched the bitch in bed with the gentleman, in fact. I saw Mr. Buckle come down the steps from the door with his shirt all bloodied at the time. He was only in the shirt and nightcap, and his hands were like pressing one another on the place where he was cut across the belly. Again, kind of showing how... Uh, questionable some of the publishing practices could be. She called them Mr. Buckle or at least that's what got printed where the guy's name was Bridges. They weren't great on proofreading back then. (laughs) So after 11 o'clock, she hears a big to-do out in the hallway. So she goes out. There's George standing with his wife's bra saying, I've caught the bitch in bed with the dragoon upstairs. And then the dragoon from upstairs comes out bleeding from the stomach. Holding his, his stomach. Witnesses on the street who spoke to Bridges before he died, which took about an hour, and from a stomach wound, that's not a, a good hour. No. The witnesses that he talked to said that he named his killer as George and denied being in bed with the man's wife. At the trial, George repeated the story that he found Bridges in bed with his wife and reacted without thinking when he stabbed him. Character witnesses for the victim said that that was outside of Bridges' character, implying that it was... Unlikely that he had actually been in bed with George's wife. And as for George's wife, there's she doesn't testify. There's no... Of course not. No evidence of, like, what happened to her after this at all. George Venables was found guilty of manslaughter and sentenced to branding, which was a standard sentence for those guilty of manslaughter. You would get an M branded on your thumb. The idea was that you wouldn't get a second chance of being guilty of an oopsie kind of crime, like... you you weren't gonna fake like an actual murder as a manslaughter a second time Uh, and the punishment happened right after the trial ended without a break between verdict and sentence so there was no appeal
1: but that's the like he didn't go to jail he just got branded
0: yeah okay so it started off branding on the thumb and then they decided that was too easy to hide so they started branding people on the face and then they decided that was unfair to people guilty of manslaughter because it meant they couldn't like have a good complete life and couldn't get a job so they went back to branding on the thumb but that's all you got <laughs> which like I get sometimes manslaughter just happens right yes. and there's a reason why you have a train rolling through your village so that's why you have like a difference between murder and manslaughter sometimes it is really just yes. an accident but like you also don't want too many people claiming manslaughter when it was actually premeditated which is why you don't get a second chance at a manslaughter
1: conviction But again, this guy accidentally, or whatever, killed somebody. The other guy stole some gold or silver. Yeah. Was hung. This guy was branded, and then he was done.
0: Yeah. But he stole it from the company, so...
1: (laughs) I get the company
0: part. I mean, we've all seen Pirates of the Caribbean. Which doesn't make sense why the East India Company is operating in the West Indies, but that's another story that we'll get to at another time, I'm sure.
1: But much like the Hudson Bay Company in, um, God, what is that show? Frontier. Frontier.
0: I haven't seen it yet, but...
1: It's actually not bad. We watched a few episodes of it. It's pretty violent, but, um, so was the time. Yeah. But, like,
0: compared to the East India Company, I, all other companies were kind of cuddly and fun. The East India Company was out to
1: <laughs> No, all, a lot of up. these other companies were out to fuck shit up. Like... <laughs>
0: yeah. But I guess I always... Yeah. Yeah what and how the East India Company did it for how long and to how many
1: people is on a scale. (laughs) But all these other companies just followed that model. This is true. This is very true.
0: (laughs) So one last story, and this is a short one to share. Uh, It concerns a clergyman, William Rowland, who in July 1729 was found guilty of libel. What drew me to this story is uh, the petty nature of what he did, which I just found delightful and could see myself doing. (laughs) The libel charge came from a pamphlet that Roland had published. The problem was he used the pen name (laughs) Sodomastix, and in it he accused the Right Honorable, the Lord Chief Justice of the King's Bench, and a few other high powerful men in the criminal justice system of not doing their job properly. Okay, so everyone gets to have an opinion, but he accused them of letting several people go who were brought before them for sodomitical practices, Quote, insinuating that it was done for some personal views. So there's a clergyman publishing under the name Sodomastics, accusing judges of being a little too sympathetic to the gay gentleman in the crowd, if you know what I mean.
1: <laughs> so y'all can hear my eye roll.
0: Yeah. <laughs> The court found the claims made by sodomastics to be groundless, and that Rowland was in fact the author slash publisher of this pamphlet, and so they found him guilty, and he spent some time in the pillory as his punishment. It's just so dickish. It's something I would have done. Like I don't agree with what you're doing, so I'm going to try to embarrass the shit out of you. <laughs> Welcome to my world. <laughs> So these are some pretty harmless stories, um, but there are the records online that range from the gamut of a dummy having to bust his way up through four chests of tea and almost drowning in it, <laughs> to full-on rape, murder, and mayhem, but I was trying to keep it light and fun. Yeah.
1: Which is good, because I ended with like people dying. True. So. What struck me is that the
0: rationale and actions that a lot of people had in what they did and why they did it would fit here and now, proving that we aren't so far removed from our past selves as we may think because the human condition is the human condition that's ever and it's constant.
1: And right now everybody is doing what that dickish priest had done because you can create a priest six times 684 profile and post Whatever you'd like. Yes, exactly.
0: I hope that those listening have experienced the historian's frustration of desperately wanting to know more. Like, why was the priest suggesting that some judges were a little too sympathetic to the homosexuals in the crowd? But we can't ever know.
1: Well, also, how did it take that guy three days to get the spider cut out of himself? Yes.
0: (laughs) See, but like, now we can probably ask him. The problem is, is we can't jump in the way back machine and hit up William Rollins for his details so this is just a bit of an insight into the way that historians are often held hostage by the data or lack thereof and so you're just never going to know or you've got to extrapolate from others around it finally if you are a writer looking for inspiration I can't think of a better source than this amazingly complete database so please if you are looking for inspiration for your next screenplay or book go to theoldbailey.com and randomly search things randomly so you could just like put in keywords you can search by the type of punishment they got by the type of crime they committed dates years gender like you could just search matrix the shit out of that and come up with gorgeous little jewels
1: <laughs> do they have a randomizer button they do
0: actually i got george's story from the uh, story of the day <laughs> nice. yesterday when i was prepping the story uh was the anniversary of george's trial
1: <laughs> Poor George. No, poor oh, yes, uh, yeah, sorry. George. <laughs> sorry, I was thinking he was the tea guy for a second. No, that
0: was John. Poor John. George, John, John. <laughs> yeah, William. yeah, they weren't creative with the names. Not really. <laughs> fuck,
1: they were not. Although, this is coming from a woman who named her children Elizabeth and Victoria, so.
0: Well, there's that joke from uh, 30 Rock where it's people need to stop naming their children weird names and just stick to the kings and queen in England. Like, yes.
1: <laughs> That's true, I really did.
0: So that is my story for this week. Oh,
1: good. Fun so times. we did all kinds of, of crimes and misdemeanors. Yes. We're all over the place. So if you want to see what else we're doing, you can go to our website, which hosts our blog, as well as our support tab. So you can see, uh, you can come and support us if you like what, you're, what we're doing um, and get access to our Patreon sections, which have all kinds of fun hidden Easter egg jewels. Uh, It also has the tab to our merch, uh, which at some point in my life I'm going to get and make some uh, cool merch with some of the quotes, especially like, no one wants to be paying off their tits in nursing second home. Uh, And donut holes for your penis. And uh, what was the other one? Oh, yes. Women can be idiots too. That's what feminism is all about. Absolutely. Uh, you can also reach out and let us know what kind of rabbit holes you fall down. If there's anything you'd like us to cover, uh, you can find us at, through email at rabbitholespodcast at gmail.com. I think that's all. The website. Oh, I did the website. Oh, website is rabbitholes.com. Rabbitholespodcast.com. Blah, Jesus. How many weeks deep into this are we, Andy? <laughs> I know, I just hit my head
0: on the back of the chair. <laughs> Knock some sense into it. Let's go. Uh.
1: <laughs> yes.
0: Uh... Shit, what do I... I don't normally do this part.
1: <laughs> See, I don't normally do the website. True. So,
0: if you would like to interact with us on the show- socials, where we are super cool and not at all the giant nerds that we are on the show. <laughs> Total lie. Uh, we are at t- on Twitter at RabbitholesPod. Pod on Instagram at rabbit holes podcast and on Facebook on the rabbit holes podcast page. Also, if you have a minute, uh, you want to just head over to wherever you're getting this podcast and, uh, leave us a good rating or a review. And then also recommend us to your friends and family and help us get our name out there. It would be very much appreciated.
1: And to close it out, which I normally don't do. There's only one last thing to say. If you don't know where you're going anywhere, any road will take you there. Shameful, you want to try that again? <laughs> I normally don't do this. Part.
0: Would you like me to do it? <laughs> yes, please. Okay, in that case, I will remind you that if you don't know where you're going, any road will take you there. I was close. Bye, guys. Bye.